It's always a privilege to get to be with you. It's always an honor to be able to take a look at God's word together. Thanks for allowing me to do this, Chris. I appreciate that. Thanks for allowing me to be here and be a part of this. Take a look, if you would, at Philippians chapter one. Just turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter one. You know, last week we began a series through the book of Philippians. We're gonna continue this series really through the end of this semester. We'll, we'll, we'll finish Philippians chapter one, then we're gonna take a short break and turn our face towards Easter and the cross. Then we'll come back to Philippians Philippians chapters 2, 3, and 4. And we've already seen some interesting things in the book of Philippians. We've already seen that in Philippians chapter 1, we get to discover who we are in Christ. And in Philippians chapter 2, we get to see a little bit about who Christ is and what it is that Christ has done for us. In Philippians chapter 3, we get to see the purpose that God has given to each and every one of us. And in Philippians chapter 4, we get to see the provision that Christ has for us. And so this letter that Paul, that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, is really an encouraging letter to a group of people that he had this great relationship with. And so I want, as we read Philippians chapter 1 here in just a moment, I want to ask you a question. And I want that question to just kind of settle into your heart this morning, because I think it's an important question for you. Do you have do you have a friendship or do you have a relationship in your life that just makes you better? Do you have the kind of friendship with someone or the kind of relationship with someone that because that person is part of your life, they just make you better? Now, I'd be willing to bet that most of us would say maybe yes to that question. It'd be easier probably for us to identify those relationships that just drain the life out of us. You know, you know, you know those people, as soon as you walk into the room with them, you're like, oh my goodness, this is going to be hard. They're, they're going to talk to me. They're going to say hello. And all of a sudden, the life's going to be drained right out of you. Might be easier to find relationships like that. But I, I just want you to settle on that question for just a minute. Do you have the kind of friendship with someone or the kind of relationship with someone that makes you better. Isn't it good to have relationships like that? Aren't you, I mean, don't you love it when you come across someone in your own life that's like that? I have a, a friend that I met when I was in seventh grade. His name is Brian. And he lives on the other side of the state, but we still keep in contact. And, and he's one of those guys that over the course of my life, he's just made me better. We can, when we, even though we haven't been together in a long time, when we call each other or when we finally get together, and it's just like a, a moment hasn't passed. We just kind of pick up where we've started. When we play games with my wife or in his wife or something like that, Londa won't let me be on Brian's team because we can complete each other's sentences. We know how each other thinks and we just always win. We can be playing Pictionary and I like put a dot on the board and he's like, Star Wars, you know, and we get it. He just gets it right because we have that kind of friendship like that. You've, I hope you have a friendship or a relationship like that. In all honesty, my relationship with Londa is like that. My relationship with my wife is like that. My relationship with Londa is the kind of friendship, it's the kind of relationship that has just made me better. I'm encouraged when I'm around her. I'm inspired when I'm around her. I'm challenged when I'm around her. And there's just something about my relationship with my wife that makes me better. Now, that is not a pastor's desperate plea before the, 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 the Sunday before Valentine's Day to sound like a hopeless romantic with his wife. I promise you, that's not what that is. It's true. My relationship with Londa makes me better. Okay, maybe it is a desperate plea for me to sound hopelessly romantic. Maybe that is what that is. But it's true she makes me better. She does. And it's because sometime in God's past, he said, I'm going to need to put an instrument of grace into Chad's life. And he chose to do it through Londa. 
What a privilege it is to have that kind of relationship. Do you have a relationship or a friendship that's like that? A relationship that encourages you, that challenges you, that inspires you, that just makes you better? When I think about our staff, I'm, I'm just, guys, I've been on staff here for 16 years, and I'm just so blessed by you all as a church, and in particular by the men and the women who are serve as our staff. I'm better because Chris Wall is my pastor. I'm better because... Brad Ayler is a friend of mine. I'm better because of Keith Davis and Clayton Weems. And I'm better because of Joe McKean and Brennan Fulton and Susan and Lucinda and Paul and all those people that God's put on my staff. They just, I don't know, when I'm with them, I'm just energized and I'm excited. And, and even though I may be exhausted and tired and the work may be hard and there may be challenges and difficulties that we have to overcome, there's something about being with that group of men and women that just inspires me with the confidence that we can do this. Not because we're so brilliant or because we're so good, but there's just something God does. It's like he's made them instruments of grace, instruments of grace in my life, and I'm just encouraged by them. I have friends inside the life of the church. There are men like Paige Cole, men like James Callison, men like, like, like Randy Thomas, and no matter when we get together, and there's so many that I just can't name. I'm just blessed in that way. There's just so many people like that that when I'm with them, I'm just energized and I'm excited about what's next or what's going on in the life of our congregation, the life of our community, or the life of our church. God's really done a beautiful thing in my life. And it's not because of me. It's because of you. And it's because of the people that God surrounded me with. I'm blessed with all kinds of relationships that just make me better. What about you? Are you that? Do you have that in your life? If you don't have that, I hope you can find it. I hope you can. I believe you can find it here. I believe you can find it in our small groups. I can believe you can find it with people all around you. I hope you have that inside your life because life is just so much better when we find those people that God's designated as instruments of grace inside our life. When we look at Philippians chapter 1, when we look at, at Paul's letter to the Philippians, that's what we see in Paul's life. The people at the church in Philippi, their lives were better because Paul was involved in their lives and his life was better because they were involved in Paul's life. We're going to see that in Scripture this morning. And so we always like to stand out of honor for God's Word when we read it together. So would you stand with me? And let's read the next section in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 3, and we're going to read through to verse 11. And as we read, see if you can't hear the affection and the kindness and the love that Paul feels for these people who are in the church in the community of Philippi. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the very first day until now. And being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, 
being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. You can be seated. You can see inside that first section, verses 3 through 11, you can see the affection that Paul has for the church at Philippi, and you can see that that, that, that affection is returned to him. And I hope, I hope you have friendships. I hope you have relationships like that in your own life. Just by way of reminder about the book of Philippians that we started last week, remember Paul was a missionary, and he was on his second missionary journey when he, would thought, he thought he would go to the east. He thought he would go to Asia when God stopped him. When God stopped him, he said, don't go don't go to Asia. I want you to go west to Macedonia. When, when Paul took that call, he went west to Macedonia. The first city he came to was the city of Philippi. And Paul followed his typical pattern. He went to the place where Jewish believers, where Jewish people met, and he talked to them about who Jesus was. And many of them, Lydia was one of the first, who be, they became a, a believer in Christ. And out of that group of, of Jewish people who became believers in Christ, a church began. And Paul had this incredible relationship with the church at Philippi. And as he writes this letter to them, he's writing from jail. He's writing from prison. And these are the people who have encouraged him. They've inspired him. They've challenged him. And he's done exactly the same thing for them. And you remember, we started last week. We said that this book really is Paul talking to that church about what humility really looks like. We saw that at the very beginning of Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says that I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Christ. And we said that word bondservant is the word doulos, which means slave. And we always think of the word slave as something that's a low station. It's something that's not good. It's something that's terrible. But Jesus and his apostles and Paul, they rewrote the book on what it means to be a slave to Christ. And when they did that, they rewrote the book on what humility really is. Humility, we said, is using who you are and what you have for the benefit of others. All through this book, we're going to see examples of humility. And what we're going to see is that every time humility is using who you are and what you have for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. And we said last week that as a slave to Christ, you're either going to be a slave to your sin and to yourself, or you're going to be a slave to Christ, and and you're going to surrender to his will and his desire for your life. And the reason why we need to surrender to God's will in our life is because if you don't, you become a slave to your sin and self. You're you're a slave to, to someone who didn't create you if you're a slave to yourself. Someone who didn't create you, who has invested nothing in you. You're a slave to someone who didn't create you, who's invested nothing in you, and to someone who expects nothing of you but for you to be consumed in some meaningless activity. You're either going to be a slave to sin and self, or you're going to be a slave to God. And the reason why we can surrender to God with confidence is because God is the one who created us. You were created by God. You were created by God. But more than that, You were purchased, you were bought at a price, and it was the price of the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead so that you and I can be forgiven. And that was the purchase price for your sin and mine. We owed this debt that we couldn't pay, and Jesus Christ paid that debt for us. You were created by God, you were bought at a price. And you were made for a mission. When God saves you, when God comes into your life, when he transforms your life, he doesn't just expect to consume you and see that that, that you just live this meaningless life. He expects that he's going to give you this incredible purpose and he's made you for this mission. And what we see in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, is we see the beginnings of how God continues to apply his intentional grace 
into your life. We see how God uses the people around you to transform you into something more than you ever imagined. And we see the privilege that we have and the blessing that we have because God has really given us this gift of one another. Look at Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. This is the very first idea that we see in Philippians chapters 1 verses 3 through 11. Verse 6, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's looking to the church at Philippi and he's saying to them, God started something in you that's, that's eternal. He started something in you that's transformed your life forever. And God's not just going to let that sit. He's going to do something in you that can't be explained because of you. Have you heard that phrase before you? Before He's going to do something in you that can't possibly be explained because of you. And the way he's going to do that is he started something in you and he's going to complete that work that he started. What he started you might be able to say, is that he started it in history past when he made this choice that Jesus Christ would come to pay your penalty and mine for the sin in our life. There's a, there's a, a Bible word for that. It's the word justification. That in the past, God started a work in you to justify you, to make you right with him and to make you right with others, to make it just as though you never sinned. When you place your faith in Christ, when you surrender to him and say, Father, I trust in you, through Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. He's, he takes your sin nature. It's like he removes it from you and he transposes it. He takes the righteous life of Christ and he places it in you. He makes it just as if you've never sinned. That's something that he's done for everyone who's surrendered their lives to Christ. That's justification. But he doesn't just stop there. In the present, in the current circumstances, he's sanctifying you. He's working in you today to make you a little bit more like him today than you were yesterday. He continues to work in you and through you so that you become a reflection of who he is, so that you can follow him more deeply and more intimately, so that your knee-jerk reaction can be a reaction of grace and a reaction based on the word of God so that your next breath can be a breath of obedience and your next step can be a step of faith. That's sanctification. That's God working in you and through you right now and being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's not just working justification to make it just as if you never sinned and sanctification to make you a little bit more like Christ each and every day. He's also working in you to complete you so that on that day when you stand face to face with God, he can look at you and with pride say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in your, into your rest. That's called glorification. That's what that process is called. That God's working in you in the past. He saved you in the past. He's working in you today so that he can prepare you for this glorious future that he has for each and every one of us. And what we see in the rest of this passage is one of the mechanisms, one of the tools that God uses to complete us. And it's exactly what I talked about when I asked you that question at the very beginning of the service. Do you have the kind of friendship, do you have the kind of relationship in your life that just makes you better? Look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Paul had that kind of relationship. The Philippians felt this way about Paul. Paul felt this way about the Philippians. I thank my God every time I remember you. Always, in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. You see, the truth is, the truth is 
that we are God's gift to one another. That we are God's gift to one another. That first, God has done something in you to complete you. And how is he doing that? What is one of the mechanisms that he's done, that, that he's given us? He's given us this incredible mechanism, and it's me and you. He's allowed us to become instruments of grace in one another's life. He's given us as a gift. We are God's gift to each other. Look at verse uh, 7, beginning in verse 7. This is what Paul says. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. Let me tell you what that means when Paul says that, that I have you in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Paul was in prison. Paul was in prison for sharing the gospel. And at that moment, there were, there were, as we read Philippians 1, as we continue, we're going to find that there were some people who would preach Christ really to spite Paul. And there were some people who, when Paul was thrown into prison, they would, they would deny they ever knew him. They would take a step back and they would say, I don't want to have anything to do with Paul because he's in prison and some of that might rub off on me. I don't want that. I don't want to get accused of the crimes that he's accused of. Some people did that. But when Paul says, I have you in my heart because you're with me in my chains, the Philippians didn't do that. The Philippians were there in his time of crisis. They were there in his time of need. We'll see later in Philippians that the church at Philippi helped provide for his needs. They sent people to, 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 to the place where he was, probably Ephesus, where he was in prison, to, to provide for his needs and to take good care of him. And you know, when I look at this church, when I know the experiences I've had with you, I see that in the people who are here. I hear about someone who's gone into the hospital and our staff, we try to, to make it to the hospital to, to, to visit with families in moments of crisis and I never can get to the hospital faster than your friends and your small group can. I never can get there faster than those relationships that you've built inside your small groups and those relationships that you have here inside the community because you are those kinds of people to one another. And God's using us to complete one another, to encourage one another, and to inspire one another. You all are so good at that. I'm so grateful for that. And, and, and there's not a moment when I hear about a need in the life of our church that I get worried because it's just not going to be met. Because of the number of times I've just seen our church rise up to meet a need. Because that's what you do. It's who you are. And I'm better for it. I'm grateful for it. You've become an instrument of grace, intentional grace in the lives of people. And Paul says, in my time of need, when I've been in prison because of my faith, when I'm in prison because because of my preaching, you are the people who stood with me. And that's the second part of verse 7. It says that, that um, verse 7, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. You see, we've been given this gospel challenge for this year. You've heard about the gospel challenge, that we would share the gospel with as many people as is our age. I'm 46 years old. I'm trying to share the gospel with 46 people. If you're 16, 66, 86, 26, whatever age you are, try to share the gospel this year with at least that many people. When we extend that gospel challenge, it's an incredible gospel adventure that we go on. When we extend that challenge, one of the things that I'm concerned about is that we sit in the congregation and we go, Oh my goodness, I can't do that. I'm all by myself. I'm all alone in that. Paul didn't feel alone. I have you in my heart. Why? Because you were with me in my chains 
And you were with me in the gospel. From the very beginning, from the very first day until today, we have shared in this gospel message. From my first day on staff here, 16 years ago, from my very first day on staff here, you and I have shared in this gospel adventure. And never once have I been alone. And never once, as you share the gospel with people this year, as you jump into that gospel challenge, as you go on that gospel adventure, never once will you ever be alone when you do that. This is something that we get to do together. Now, one of the things that we get confused about when we think about sharing the gospel is sometimes we feel like that the gospel is a sales pitch. You know, I tell somebody three points, a poem, and a dead friend story, and soon, you know, it's boom, they're a disciple, right? All of a sudden, they're, they're saved. That's really, the gospel is really so much more than that. So today, I just want to take some time to talk about how can we share the gospel, and how can you recognize that you're not alone in sharing the gospel? Well, here's something that's really simple. Sharing the gospel is not about what you know. Sharing the gospel, it's not about trying to win a debate or win an argument or prove how many Bible verses that you've got memorized or some kind of Bible drill that you do. It's not about walking up to somebody with your, you know, your family Bible, the the giant family Bible with the actual picture of Jesus on the front. You know, somebody, John took out his Polaroid, took his, snapped a shot and put it on the front. It's not about walking up to somebody with your great big Bible and smacking them upside the head until they agree with you. It's not always about telling people what you know. Sharing the gospel is about introducing someone to who you know. Sharing the gospel is not about, it's not always about telling what you know. It's about, it's about introducing someone to who you know. You know, from this platform, I've talked about my family a lot. If you've been here while I've spoken, you may be able to talk about how my sons play baseball. You may be able to talk about how my daughter has, uh, you know, recently gotten her driver's license. You may know that, that she plays softball. You may have heard me tell stories about my relationship with Londa and how how we met one another. But can I tell you, each one of those people I just named, knowing facts about those people is one thing, but you don't know the blessing of knowing them personally until I've had a chance to introduce you to them. I guarantee you, if you got to know my wife, you would be different. Your life would be better. Why? Well, because I've experienced the fact that she's, she's been an instrument of grace. She's applied intentional grace into my life. She's inspired me. She's encouraged me. She's challenged me. And I guarantee she would do the same thing for you. I remember the moment when Mike Compton, who was our college pastor, he looked at me and he said, hey, there's this girl. Uh, we were both in college. There's this girl who plays the flute and she goes to OU. I was going to OBU. I remember the moment he said, you should find this girl. I was leading worship for our college ministry. We had about 200 college students who would show up every Sunday morning. And he said, hey, this girl plays flute and you should have her play for our, our, our college worship service sometime. She could come play with us sometime. So I spent an entire semester looking for this girl. I knew some facts about her. She played the flute. She was a girl. That's a good thing. Um, I, I knew some things about her. I hadn't yet met her. And then there was this moment, and the, another friend of ours, a mutual friend, actually two mutual friends, Jenny Johnson and Ira Pinkston, they, they finally connected us. And then I met Londa. And being the, you know, swab and debonair guy that I was, I shook her hand. Hi, I'm Chad. And I remember she held on a little bit longer. (laughs) And I held on a little bit longer. And knowing those facts about her wasn't nearly the same as being introduced to her. And my life's never been the same. I can tell you lots of facts about my kids. But I can also remember that 16 years ago, I was introduced to my first daughter. 
and my life's never been the same. Sharing the gospel isn't simply about sharing facts about what you know about Jesus. It's about introducing someone to who you know. And you never do that. When you share the gospel, you're never alone. There's never a moment when you're alone in sharing the gospel. There are people here who are praying for you. There are people here who are phenomenal. They're fantastic at at the facts side of it. If there's a question you don't know the answer to, there are people here who can help you answer those questions. There are people here who would go with you to share the gospel. There are people who stand ready to pray for you and to serve with you in this gospel adventure and in this gospel challenge. When you share the gospel with people, here, you're never alone. And it's never just about sharing facts with someone. It's about introducing someone to who you know. You see, it's actually more than that. It's actually more than that. Here's the way we can share the gospel. It's just such a simple way we can do it. It's probably the most passive thing that you can do to share the gospel in the lives of some, in someone's life is just start with an invitation. Just start with an invitation. Probably the most passive, easiest thing you could do is start with an invitation. This church provides a thousand opportunities for you to just invite someone to come and hear the gospel. There's actually a a card in your chair today that's about our Ash Wednesday services. You could take that card and use it as an invitation between now and Wednesday night, and you could just invite someone to come. Hey, our church, we're we're Southern Baptists, but we're celebrating Ash Wednesday. Who knew? Why would we do that? I don't know. But we're you know we're not we're not Catholic. We're we're Baptists, but we're sharing we're doing this Ash Wednesday thing. It'd be awesome. Why don't you come with me? Start with an invitation. Every Sunday morning is an opportunity to invite someone to come with you. Just start with an invitation. Hey, why don't you come with me? On February 22nd, guys, there's a man who's coming named Cody Bobay and Joe McKean is going to lead worship. You've, you've heard that this morning already. What a great opportunity to look at your friends, to look at guys that you work with, maybe even your son or maybe your dad or your granddad to say, hey, this man's coming to our church. Just start with an invitation. Why don't you just come with me? But like I said, that's probably the easiest, most passive way to start a gospel conversation. That's the the next idea. Don't just start with an invitation. Make it a conversation. Make it a conversation. Talk with people. Let them talk. Let them tell the story of their faith. Hey, come with me to church next Sunday. I'd love for you to come with me next Sunday. After church, if you come with me, I'll take you and your family to lunch. Come with me. I'd love to take you to lunch. And then over lunch... Just to have a conversation. Hey, tell me about your faith. I, I'm, thanks, thanks for coming to church with me today, but I, did you grow up going to church? Tell me about your faith. Tell me what you believe. Let them do the talking. Let them explain their beliefs to you. Let them explain their experiences with you. And then the more they explain, the more opportunity you have to say, that's fantastic. That's great. Man, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's amazing. Can I, can I introduce you to someone that I know who's changed my life forever? Can I introduce you to someone that has transformed the way I think about the world? Maybe you go out to lunch after church or maybe after the Ash Wednesday service, you take them over to Cherry Berry or to Brahms or you go to Starbucks and you've started with an invitation and now you've, you've transitioned into this conversation and, and maybe you're not as confident as you like to be at introducing someone to who Jesus is, so you bring someone with you. And now someone from your small group is with you and and now they can, they can talk about who Jesus is to them and what it is that Jesus has done in their life. <laughs> I remember growing up thinking about how to share the gospel. And 
I, when I was really young, I was like 10, maybe 11 years old, I took a class called CWT, Continuing Witness Training. And they were trying to teach me how to share the gospel. CWT is great. It was a great way for, it to mem- for me to memorize scripture. It was a great way for me to understand what the gospel was really all about. But one of the diagnostic questions in CWT was, to me, as like an 11-year-old kid, it was kind of, it was kind of intimidating. The question was this. They said, start the conversation by asking this question. If you were to die right now, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? That's a good question, but that's kind of awkward <laughs> for me. I'm not good at asking questions like that. I kept thinking as, 11, as an 11-year-old, how can I put on my best mafia voice and pull someone in close to me and get right eye to eye with them and, hey, if you were to die right now. You know, there's nothing about an 11-year-old that's intimidating. There's nothing about me today that's intimidating enough for that question to make somebody go, I don't know. What should the answer be? I don't know. There's nothing about that. That's not a terrible question, but sometimes that may be an awkward way to start the conversation. Don't. Don't ask a question like that. Hey, tell me about your faith. Hey, tell me about your time growing up in church. Did you grow up in church? Tell me what you think about this idea of of forgiveness. Is it hard for you to forgive? I have a hard time forgiving sometimes. Is it hard for you to forgive? You brought them to church. They, we talk about things here. Hey, what would you think about what the guy on the platform said today? Make it a conversation. And let God bring that conversation to a conclusion. You remember that verse, that he who began a good work in you, God's starting something in their life because you extended an invitation. And through that invitation, you've made it a conversation. He's not just started something. He's continuing something in your life and in theirs. So when you share the gospel here, you're never alone. There's never a moment that you're alone. Start the conversation with, or start it with an invitation and then make it a conversation. You know, there's even some things that we can all agree on. Even for someone who doesn't believe the Bible's true, that they're not sure about spirituality, they're not convinced that the church organized is kind of a good thing to be a part of, they've had a bad experience or something, there's still some things that we can agree on. We can agree that the mistakes that we've made, that the sin in our life, we can agree that the sin in our life has hurt us, that our own choices, we've been hurt by our own choices. We've been hurt by the choices of others. And that our choices have hurt people. It doesn't matter what your faith background is. We can all agree on that. You know where we disagree is when we start talking about the solution to that. God has the only solution that's relevant and that's lasting. And it's this. That Jesus died on the cross. And he rose from the dead. And because of that one action... All of those things that have hurt us, that have caused us to hurt others, all that sin that separates us from God and breaks our relationship with one another, all of those things can be forgiven. And you know what the essence of forgiven is? The essence of forgiven is that my relationship with God has been restored. And now because my relationship with God has been restored, my relationship with other people now has the potential to be restored. God loves people, but sin hurts people. And now Jesus, I can tell you, he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And that's why we can be forgiven. Start with an invitation and make it a conversation. Why? Because in this gospel adventure, through this gospel challenge, you and I are never alone. You make me better as I share the gospel. And, and, and here's how I can see this. Look at this. Look in the verse, uh, verse 7 again. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. 
inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And then he says this remarkable thing. Because God has used you as this remarkable instrument of grace in my life. And because I can't stop thanking God for you, I am praying for you right now. And then he tells us what he's praying for the church at Philippi. And when I say that we are not alone, this is the kind of thing that you and I can pray for one another. Look at what he prays, beginning in verse 9. And this is what I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Our prayers for one another make us something more. It's exactly what happens. Our prayers for one another make us something more. When you leave this place, you're not alone. When you're in your workspace, when you're at your school, when you're out on the ball field, you're not alone in this gospel adventure. Why? Because this is something I've been praying for you and for me and for my family for such a long time. This is something that our Sunday school teachers, this is something that our pastors, this is something that we can pray for one another Each and every day. And as we pray, it makes us something more. It makes us something more together than we are on our own. And the essence of that prayer is really very simple. Here's what he's praying. He's praying that our love for one another would overflow. He's praying that our love would overflow. That our love for each other would be a kind of kindness that we share out in the world. That we would love people who aren't like us. That we would love people who don't like us. That we we would extend intentional grace to everyone around us. That somehow we would make an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. And that our love from God, because we're filled by him, would overflow. That's the first prayer. And this I pray, that your love would abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things which are excellent, not only that our love would overflow, but that our choices would be wise. I'm praying for you. We can pray for one another that our love would overflow and that our choices would be wise. When I have to choose to go left or to go right, to speak up or to shut up, when is it time for me to do that? God, help me to be wise about when it's time to move this direction or that, to live in this neighborhood or that, to take this job or to take that. Father, give me wisdom. Actually give my friends wisdom in how to do that. First, that our love would overflow. Second, that our choices would be wise. Verse 9, and this I pray, that your love would abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things which are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. That's the idea that we could pray for one another, that our relationships would be filled with intentional grace. That we would be the carriers of God's grace everywhere we go. That we would extend kindness and mercy and gentleness to the world around us. That the people who are lost and the people who don't trust the church and don't trust church people, who would look, they would look at us and they would be able to say, I don't know if I agree with them. I don't, know if, I don't know if I believe all of the facts that they give me, but there's something in their life that I find admirable. And I'd like to know more about that. That our relationships with one another would be the kinds of relationships that spread intentional grace. And this I pray, that your love would abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. That you would approve the things which are excellent. That you would be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Watch this. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, 
which are by Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who fills us with those fruits of righteousness to the glory and praise of God the Father. That's the fourth thing we can pray for one another, that our actions together, that our actions individually would give people a reason to praise God. That our actions together, that our actions individually would give people a reason to trust God. That our actions individually, that our actions together would give people, they would give, a, they would give people a reason to surrender to the one who created them and to the one who purchased them and to the one who gave them a purpose for life itself. You see, on this gospel adventure, as we extend this gospel challenge, you're never, ever alone. And here's the thing that I just know for sure. I know that for sure because I've experienced it. There have been moments in my life when my faith has been challenged. And it's been one of you that's prayed for me, that's carried me through. There have been moments when I've been called upon to share the gospel in a difficult and challenging circumstance with people who are combative to church life and people who don't believe the Bible. There have been moments when I've been called upon to do that. And and you know how I made it through that? It's not because I'm brilliant. And it's not because I'm working on a degree. And it's not because of any other reason than there were men and women just like you who were praying prayers just like that. And you were doing it for me. And it happens in this place every day of the year. It happens through you every day of the year. Some of you are here today because someone extended an invitation. And and can I tell you this? That person extended an invitation to you because they want to have a conversation with you. And right now there are people you don't even know who are praying for you that we as the people of God in this community would give you a reason to trust God. That we would be able to extend to you intentional grace because we've been receivers of that intentional grace. And I can stand here with certainty and I can say there are friends that I described at the beginning of this message with that question. There are friends that I have in this room that are just like that, who are praying for you today. I hope that today you can experience that grace and that you'll surrender to him. Everybody, if you would, bow your head and close your eyes. We're going to take a moment to have what's called an invitation. And it's really just an opportunity for us to respond to what it is that God's told us today. There's three kinds of responses you could have today. Maybe you're someone who is invited and you've heard about this grace that God has for you and the love that he has for you and the way that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we can be forgiven and you'd like to know more about that. Maybe you'd like to surrender to him today. When we start singing here in just a moment, we'll all stand together and we'll sing, come forward and take the hands of one of these men and just let them know, I'd like to know more about that. That's the first part of the invitation. Another part of the invitation is for those of us who are believers in Christ, that we would make that commitment to pray for one another, verses 9 through 11, that we would partner with one another on this gospel adventure. Maybe we need to come to the front and pray at this altar, that, that we would pray for one another, that God would do something in us and through us that can't be explained because of us. That's the second part of this invitation. And the third part really is just to each and every one of us who are believers in Christ. And that that's that we, would, that we would go on this gospel adventure together. That tomorrow when we step into the workplace, when we step into the schools, wherever it is that we go, that we would be instruments of God's grace and that we would tell the world about the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us on the cross at Calvary and how he rose from the dead so that we can be forgiven. As we sing in just a moment, let that response be one of the responses 
that you give to him today.